0: And welcome to Detangling Development, a seven-part podcast series brought to you by Unipid, the Finnish University Partnership for International Development. In this podcast, we dive deeper into important themes related to global development by interviewing a guest with expert insight or research in the specific topic. I'm your host, Melissa Plath. In this episode, we dive deeper into One Health and global inequality. Health inequalities are differences in health status or in the distribution of health resources between different social groups. Unfortunately, there are wide disparities across the world which have exacerbated due to the COVID pandemic. The lower an individual's socioeconomic position, the higher their risk of poor health. The United Nations Environment Programme's experts say that greater cooperation among ecologists, zoologists, and public health officials can help address health challenges and their social and economic impact. Hence, the creation of One Health as an alternative approach that can demonstrate how the interconnection of different fields of study can achieve better public health outcomes and tackle global health inequality. But what is One Health, and how can it help alleviate global health inequality in practice? Here with me to answer those questions is Dr. Sarah Green, Professor of Social and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Helsinki. She has a Ph.D. in social anthropology and is a specialist on location, borders, and spatial relations in the Balkans and Mediterranean regions. Although these themes are quite varied, Dr. Green's major interest lies consistently in the notion of location. Her work and research have concentrated in exploring how people locate themselves in the world and in relation to themselves and others. Dr. Green was awarded a European Research Council advance grant called Cross Locations, which is developing a new way to think about relations between locations across the Mediterranean region. There are a team of eight researchers working together in that project, which includes specialists in Greece, Lebanon, Egypt, Spain, Italy, and Morocco. Sarah's own work focuses on the whole Mediterranean. Her study is looking into the cross-border transportation of livestock across the Mediterranean region, as well as the attempts to control the spread of zoonotic disease. This research led her to become involved with Helsinki One Health, which is a network organization launched in 2018 to coordinate research actions on human, animal, and environmental health at the University of Helsinki. It encourages different disciplines and professions to work together to resolve emerging health problems concerning animal and human populations worldwide. Given her research background and expertise, she's without a doubt the ideal person to talk to for this episode's theme. Welcome, Sarah. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. So I'm very curious about how you got started looking at health. You're an anthropologist. So how did you end up researching health?
1: Yes, well, there's a very big branch of anthropology that's called medical anthropology, and I'm not a member of it. Uh, (laughs) I'm actually a specialist on borders and boundaries and location. And so what I'm particularly concerned with is the attempts to control the spread of disease. Mm -hmm. Particularly in the Mediterranean region, I can go on and talk about that later. Um, But my main interest is in borders and boundaries and location. And as a result of that, I've become interested in how that comes into attempts to stop how disease spreads across the planet. So that's basically how I got into health issues. Well, I think you already described it in a very simple way, but
0: I'll still ask you the question since I've asked everyone. If you had to explain your work to a 10-year-old, how would you explain it?
1: I'm interested in the difference between here and somewhere else and how that's worked out by both authorities like governments and police but also how it's understood by people, how they feel the difference between here and somewhere else, and how that works not only for people, but also for the movement of goods and the movement of our millions of little friends, such as viruses and diseases.
0: I think that's a perfect way of describing it, and 10-year-old Melissa is very interested (laughs) in what you're studying. Let's move a little bit now to the concept of One Health, which at least for me in the past couple of years, it's been a fairly new concept that I've been learning about. So Mm. could you start by telling us what One Health actually is?
1: Well, actually, they've redefined themselves several times and a new definition came up I think they must have had a committee that worked for a very long time on this one phrase, which is, One Health is an integrated, unifying approach that aims to sustainably balance and optimize the health of people, animals, and ecosystems. I'm quoting there. (laughs) So that's their new definition of themselves. But basically, the idea of One Health goes back uh, probably about 10 to 15 years And it was the idea that any kind of problem that humans experience in terms of their health also is affected by and affects animals and the environment, and that therefore you can't really solve human problems in these areas without also paying attention to animals and the environment. That's the official definition. I can go on into the longer history, if you like, but that's basically the concept behind it.
0: Well, I think it is interesting to know a little bit more about where this came from. What is the history and why is it emerging now as maybe something that's a bit bigger on the agenda, especially for funding agencies and uh, multilateral agencies?
1: Yeah, well, One Health really started or was more promoted from the veterinary side, the animal health side Mm -hmm. of things. And it's still the case today that the vast majority of them people who are majorly involved in One Health are veterinarians, not medical doctors, and not ecologists, and much, much less social scientists or people involved in the humanities. And the major uh, push to make One Health something that is of global interest and global concern has come from three agencies, two of which are known quite well, the World Health Organization, or WHO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, or the FAO, and a much less known organization, the World Animal Health Organization, which has got the acronym OIE. Those three organizations, which are the the kind of UN-based global organizations, um, are the ones that have underwritten and countersigned the idea that One Health is a good idea. Beyond that, there are a number of funding agencies, particularly in the EU and others, who have been funding both research and development projects with the One Health name. But of course, what exactly that means has varied hugely. People really define it in all kinds of different ways, which is perhaps why One Health keeps coming up with these one-liner definitions that tries to like pinning jello to the wall, uh, <laughs> find defined what the idea is. Yeah, mm. is there something new about this approach? Yeah, what's new is the taking into account the animals, actually, uh, because health and public health uh, for many centuries has been almost solely concerned with people. And the concern with the animals has either been about exterminating pests or about the health of livestock, right. uh, because livestock were valued value to people. And so the welfare of animals or the health of animals in a wider sense is is relatively new. And the idea of different agencies that have different tasks, if you like, whether the task of animal health or the task of human health or the task of watching ecosystems and the environment. They have been separate entities and separate agencies and the idea of them actually having to talk to one another, it's a relatively new thing. And so that's new. However, One Health has to fit into pre-existing structures and infrastructures and organisations and inequalities around the planet. And so there's where some of the sticking points come in that maybe something that sounds new and sounds reasonable and intelligent and so on, actually in the end ends up reproducing the structural inequalities that exist in the planet because they have to work through the same organizations as reproduce those differences. Right. Well, this
0: then very neatly leads us to the next set of questions. What does One
1: Health Research Tell us about global health inequalities. It very much depends on the research done. One Health covers a huge basket of global health inequalities, and it depends who's doing the research. So if the research is being done to really understand inequality, very often it will reveal the quite familiar pathways of the way economic differences, political differences, geopolitical differences get reproduced in health terms, both for animal health and environmental health, and it shows the interaction between what the economic constructions or structures are in the world and the health outcomes of that. Other research, which is under One Health Research, which is more the sustainability research, which is the idea of how do you help perhaps underdeveloped groups to survive in today's unequal world that are focused much more on the economic parts of things may just show an attempt to try and mitigate existing inequalities but no real way of dealing with or tackling the underlying problems that reproduce the inequalities. I mean, that's a very unclear answer, but basically it depends on what the research is trying to understand. And if the research is trying to understand inequality, then what it will reveal is the very deep interrelations between both local environmental, animal and public health issues and transnational ones through supply chains, through trajectories of pathogens, through a variety of other kinds of connections and disconnections between different parts of the world and for me one of the things that particularly interests me about One Health is that they are looking or some of the people who work within One Health are also looking not only at the connections between different parts of the planet but the disconnections and how the disconnections create and reflect the inequalities that exist in the world. We often talk about One Health or a super interconnected world and it is a super interconnected world But it is also a super disconnected world, and that is quite often quite deliberately done. I'm a borders researcher, so when you study borders, you see how putting up walls and putting up divisions is as an important indicator of the way the world works, particularly an indicator of how power works. As the links and connections between things. So one of the things that I think One Health is picking up, whether intentionally or not, is the disconnect between places, people, animals, and environments that allows the kinds of inequalities that exist in the world to be exacerbated. That's so interesting, and it sounds very complex. Yeah.
0: So do you think that, I mean, because it is so complex, do you think that One Health can actually provide answers to questions around global health and global health inequalities?
1: Yes, some. Complexity is an interesting idea. Yes, things are complex, but it's very important to try and understand what it is that makes them complicated. Mm -hmm. And One Health is helping a little bit With that, though, not necessarily always in the way that one might wish. So they are able to identify some of the things that aren't usually visible with the kind of research tools that we use within human health or animal health or ecological research trying to create the links between those or the overlaps between them or the connections and disconnection between them can make things seem very complicated but usually why that is is because there are different logics being used by in each field and so if you're trying to understand animal health in terms of the kinds of criteria that are important in human health that can be very confusing very quickly so one of the really difficult things in looking at One Health in trying to understand global inequalities is what it is it's trying to unify without understanding that there are different logics in the different ways you research these things because there are different aspects as I was saying earlier about what matters in human terms, what matters in animal terms, what matters in environmental terms and that then becomes a very difficult way of making it complex but to go back to what you were actually asking i think that one health is able to provide answers the question is who's listening and why would they listen so there are an awful lot of researchers for instance who work in the insect world who have been researching insects for ages because they love insects and they're really interested in them a lot of people aren't but the vast majority of funding for insect research has been how do you kill them and that funding has been directed by the problems that insects cause around you know to plants to crops to things that matter to humans economically environmentally and so on and so insecticide has been a huge part of insect research and As a result of that, we've lost, you know, globally about 30% of the insects in the world. And uh, some parts of the world have lost 70% of their insect population. And that makes sense because where all the funding and all the research has gone into solving insect problems has been how to kill them. And so I think that One Health can help by telling a different narrative there Mm -hmm. of saying... Maybe, although insects can be buzzing around and annoying you and keeping you from sleeping at night, they've also got their uses, and maybe we need to stop with the killing thing. Seeing the connections between one sector and the next sector is very important, but then you've got to go into it and say, okay, you can point these things out, but then who is actually going to implement what would be needed to implement to reverse it?
0: Well, I guess this is a good point then to ask indeed about policymaking and how One Health can inform policymaking. Can it? In what way? Maybe it's the same answer about it depends who's
1: asking and who's listening. Yeah, it does, of course, matter on that. But there's other issues, particularly in policy making, which is how policies have to work, you know, that interface between what's politically expedient and what might work, and also how you justify the decisions that you're making to different populations. And when there are problems that are trans-border, those are particularly difficult to deal with. Though it has to be said that in terms of public health issues, there have been attempts at transborder solutions that go back centuries, even to medieval times. The attempts to try and stop the spread of plague goes back to the 15th century. So there have been attempts, but it is very difficult across borders to try and find those kinds of solutions to policies. The other problem, which is something that the OIE is still just beginning to try and grasp, is that there are different kinds of knowledge that you need in order to really solve a problem at policy level. And the difficulty with that is that there's the hard science part, the part about the physical conditions of the environment of animals and of people. And that can be, you know, sort of statistical tables can be used to kind of defend one approach rather than another approach. But in order to really solve things, you also need the much softer knowledge that can be provided by the social sciences and humanities about uh, human behavior, human understanding, human interaction and social relations, which is much less amenable to statistical proof. And it needs other kinds of techniques. I'm an anthropologist, so ethnographic techniques, for example, but other kinds of techniques both literary from history what you can learn from history and uh, contemporary about how small group dynamics work about how different communities understand animals the world their environment and the relations between them that are much more difficult for policy makers to grasp and so they tend to just let those things drop out of their calculations and That's a real pity because we've seen with COVID-19 how terribly important social attitudes, ideas of trust, ideas of how knowledge circulates, how valid or invalid certain kinds of information are taken to be. We've seen with COVID-19 that has a massive effect on how people respond to a crisis of this type and at the moment One Health is still really dominated by the hard sciences and the social sciences and humanities are only just getting a tiny foot in the door. Partly that's also because of hiring policies that when One Health positions are opened up it's almost 100% natural scientists who are given those positions even if it's opened up to social sciences and humanities. And so this understanding that the multidisciplinarity requires going across that rubicon of the natural sciences and the social sciences and humanities uh, is still a challenge, even within One Health. Do you think
0: that it's a challenge which is specific to One Health? Or do you think that this is a symptom of the challenges of Interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary uh, interactions in
1: general? I actually think it's more structural. If you look at the history of research, if you look at the history of disciplines and so on, if there is a need for what are currently two different disciplines to come together to collaborate, it's happened in the past. You know, disciplines bud out of other disciplines and then merge and blend into other ones. It's happened throughout the time that universities have existed. I think the splits that exist are structural, how people develop their careers, how they gain both the funding to do the research that they want to do. If you want to apply to do research on some particular kind of disease, you have to apply to certain kinds of bodies and those bodies expect you to be an expert in certain things. So if you want to combine, say, social sciences and virology or epidemiology in doing a research project and you're competing against people who are doing just virology or just social science, then the body that you're going to go to, the one that's interested in social sciences is going to choose the more pure social science and the ones who are interested in the natural science are going to choose the natural sciences. It's very challenging to get selected as a mix and match group. And then the other problem is that people don't read each other's journals, you know, it's very difficult for me, and I'm one of those people that I work across disciplines, I prefer multidisciplinarity rather than interdisciplinarity, because multidisciplinarity means you are actually, do have an expertise in some field, uh, and you're bringing it to the table. It's like an orchestra where you have experts in violins or piano, uh, drums, percussion, whatever, the conductor, they all know their particular task really, really well, and they come together to make a beautiful sound, whereas If you're expecting everybody to be as good at playing the violin as they are at playing the piano or the basu or something, it's going to make a mess. And so I think quite a lot of top-down interdisciplinary policy pressure has really not understood the fact that you need to spend half a lifetime getting to be very, very good at one thing in order to make a valid contribution. So I think part of the multi-interdisciplinarity problem has been a misunderstanding of the kind of collaboration that we could be doing if we're allowed to be experts in what we do and come together to do to bring that expertise to the table, find a joint solution. And again here, the quantitative and qualitative divide is a really big one because those people who work just with numbers, and it's not just that they work with numbers, they have a particular understanding of what science is and what objective truth and validation is that is different from what the social sciences and humanities take into account and so they're quite often talking across each other and the amount of work that needs to be done to bring these kinds of groups together can be done. There's not enough recognition that it's a lot of hard work and it does need doing and recognising and maybe validating otherwise people are not going to put in the work if they don't get the career benefits of that.
0: Well, it makes me think of another question, and it's about the kind of place of origin of the researchers or the place in which they're doing research. Mm -hmm. We've talked about multidisciplinary research, but what about research between uh, people in different places, international research? From the perspective I'm interested in, especially Global North and Global South, is this useful when looking at One Health?
1: Yeah, this is really a very, very important point about One Health and it's both its weakness and its potential future strength. Its weakness at the moment is the idea of the oneness and the oneness suggests some kind of similarity across the planet and that's based on the idea that physical bodies and environmental conditions are universally the same. What it doesn't take into account is the differences between different parts of the world. And not only economic differences, which are enormous, and the political differences, which have led to a kind of hierarchy across the planet, particularly through colonialism, but a number of other kind of historical mega-events as well, that have created divisions in research, in funding for research, in attitudes towards what counts as research and so on, which is not really taken into account in that idea of oneness, that... Actually, I have been an editor of several journals, and one of them I decided it was terribly important to get reviewers. As an anthropologist, we get articles that are about all parts of the world. So I decided it was very important to get a reviewer from the country that the article was about. Mm-hmm. and. That really taught me a very great deal about the differences between the Global North and Global South in academic terms and research terms. Because first of all, it was incredibly difficult to find academics who could read this manuscript from the Global South and about their own country. And then when I did find them, they very often said things like, you're the first editor to ever ask me to evaluate this kind of manuscript. And quite often the reviews I got were not at all in the form that I would have expected that they didn't read like the normal reviews that I got of manuscripts and so I had to hesitate about whether I sent those reviews on to the author or not. This is just a small example of the kinds of challenges that existed and then there's the linguistic problems. There's also very different understandings of what counts as research, what doesn't count as research and those collaborations are really difficult to arrange but in addition and what. It's really important here about One Health global idea is that quite often the ideas of what counts as the globe, what counts as a good idea of something to do, has originated in the global north and particularly either the anglophone or francophone or lusophone. Those ideas have embedded within them a lot of assumptions about what's the best thing to do, what's the best approach to even have a lot of assumptions within them about what a person is and therefore how you would approach people to deal with things. And we know in anthropology that there's a huge diversity in that kind of thing and that the history that has come before both the political and economic history of the relations between different parts of the planet has led to enormous levels of disappointment and distrust, to put it politely between different parts of the world. And there is not nearly enough work that has been done on those kinds of differences to try and overcome them and manage them. But there's a lot of disincentive on the part of Global North institutions to progress with that, because it would mean a rather more sharing than some people are comfortable with. So then if we kind of think about the
0: everyday realities Mm -hmm. What can One Health tell us about our everyday lives?
1: Well, I think it probably can raise awareness of both the assumptions that we make every day, but also of what is going on around us every day that we don't pay enough attention to, or only occasionally, and hear the major involvement of veterinarians and the animal non-human animal or more than human animal side of things becomes really important. So for a few years now, there existed a group of people who call themselves sort of radical animal geographers. Uh, that's an interesting sort of little sub-discipline of geography in which they have been really challenging the borders between animal world, human world, between countryside and city, and how we understand those kinds of divisions. There have been particularly some urban animal geographers who have been arguing that the assumption that the city is a place for people and not for animals, and certainly not for wild animals, has turned out to be a completely untrue and be a very bad way to understand cities, and that if you understood cities much more in terms of the enormous amount of wildlife and other non-human animal life that exists within it, both in terms of wildlife that used to be elsewhere but now has adapted very, very much to cities, you'd begin to see cities in in a different light from the way that you do in the normal way. And uh, in particular, say, for instance, there's a lot of talk constantly about invasive species. Right. Uh, and species that relies on the idea that an animal belongs into a certain part of the world or a certain habitat and has moved somehow illegally or irresponsibly or in a bad way to a place where it doesn't belong. They are animals that have successfully moved into a new environment and are having a negative effect on the pre-existing wildlife there. And this is called the idea of invasive species. Now, built into that whole idea is what a border is, what, and where animals belong and where they do not belong and One Health can help us understand is that actually all animals, humans and others, are very, very adaptable. They have been throughout history. They move from one place to another. They learn to adapt from one place to another. But the wider story is that maybe a better way to see the divisions uh, between humans, animals, the environment, north, south, is to rethink how we understand the idea of border altogether, which gets back to my work. There's two ways you could see a border. One is to think of division, that there's some autonomous separate entity that exists on one side and some autonomous different entity that exists on the other side. And then you can think about how to create a connection between them. Or you could think that actually we're all coexisting in the world and that the division between me and someone else, me and somewhere else, is constantly changing arrangement Mm -hmm. and that actually what I am is in part made up of all my relations with the rest of the world and therefore there isn't any hard and fast boundary between the one and the other thing. and That idea of how we understand the world can really be affected by understanding that coexistence I'm so like into what you're saying that I'm not even thinking of the
0: next questions. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting. First of all, how all of these things are related, which you kind of understand in a very vague way that there's a an understanding that these things are not separate because we live in a world which is not separate. Mm-hmm. But then breaking it down like this, it just makes you look at the world in a totally different way and opens your eyes up to how things or maybe the assumptions that you make in your everyday life about how the world is and about how it functions and how those are totally incorrect.
1: (laughs) Or that there are ways of seeing things otherwise. Right. And I think going back to COVID, our tendency to separate the world out in -hmm. the way that One Health and others are trying to combine has caused a lot of blindness Before, we have understood that certain kinds of other animals were getting COVID from humans and then giving it back to humans. But what we hadn't understood was whether or the degree to which COVID was being passed in the wild with a wild population of animals. And it now is very clear study that's been published from Iowa that there's an enormous amount of COVID circulating in the wild animal population most of which has come from humans. They've caught it from humans. It's sort of it's called a reverse zoonosis. Zoonosis is where animal gets a disease and passes it to humans. A reverse zoonosis the other way around. And there's a lot of that going on, but there's hardly any research on it because of this division between animals and in the environment and humans. Because COVID is seen as a human disease, and so it's humans that are studying it. And also there would be enormous objections if there was funding to research. So I think this is one of the lessons of that we really do need to pay attention to those things that we don't value as highly as we do humans.
0: I was just thinking of this, is one of the things that it tells us that the interactions between humans and wild animals are
1: more complex than we maybe assume them to be. There are lots of questions also about the complexity of those kinds of interactions and how that works and does indicate that it's quite complicated the way in which these things work. In addition, what it indicates is that it's almost certain that COVID is completely endemic. Now, we will never get rid of it. Once it's in the wild population... So I think this, obviously, this COVID-19
0: pandemic is a really good example of how One Health might help us to better understand what's going on around us and why things, uh, certain things are happening. But I'm curious if there are other kinds of situations where One Health can be a useful tool for us to better understand what's happening around us.
1: Yeah, I think So long as One Health begins to develop its interaction with the social sciences and humanities and begins to take not only the oneness, but the manyness into account that, that, you know, that the world is, yes, totally interconnected, and it's also very unequal. To begin to understand that kind of combined differences, differences between different parts of the world with the fact that the borders between the one kind of body, the another kind of body, one kind of place, another kind of place is a very, very fuzzy one and one that's very context-dependent. And to begin to think in those terms that the world doesn't have just one set of borders that are these political ones that you see on a map. There are many borders in the world that are not marked on maps and that crisscross and cross-cut the ones that you do see on maps, and that those go across environmental animal species borders. And I think that that's one of the big things that it can help to understand. Yeah.
0: Well, this has been an incredibly interesting and eye-opening conversation for me. And so my final question for you is, what's next?
1: Well, I think next, if there was a way in which we could understand that our biological existence, because one of the things we haven't talked about at all is climate change. It's the big, big elephant in the room that (laughs) One Health is also very concerned with, is that if we really do take on the lessons that One Health and others who are working in that field can learn, that it might just be possible to move towards finding enough trust to have a more positive move forward. So I don't know, I think in my field, anthropology, understanding things at a level that is both very contextual, that the the fine details of exactly what it's like exactly here, but at the same time taking into account the much wider dynamics that are kind of wafting across and creating multiple layers of where you live. I think being able to just encompass that and see that it's both simple and complex at the same time, I think there's a possibility of some hope there, and there's been a lot of attacks of, on the um, justified on the way social media and the internet and so on are creating sort of cesspools of lack of trust and misinformation and so on. Right. that same media can be used to do the opposite, and I'm hoping ultimately, where we're going depends on what you know. And I think there is hope to move forward. Well, on that very
0: hopeful end note, thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Detangling Development. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to join us for the next and final one, where we will be talking about student global competencies for global responsibility with Alexandra Birisch, master student at the Changing Education Programme at the University of Helsinki. My name is Melissa Plath. See you next time. This episode was produced and edited by Kelly Brito and Alexandra Birish. Our original theme music is by Vesa Plath. This has been Detangling Development.